RadioInfluence.com. Well, the busyness of college football continues. Another episode of Rush the Field with me, Scott Seidenberg, alongside veteran coach and scout Chris Landry from LandryFootball.com. The NFL draft is here. Spring games are in the books, and it's time to focus our attention towards the training camp period in college football that will begin very shortly. But there's news, Chris, that involves the administrative part of college football. And the big story that happened last week after you and I recorded, which we thought was going to happen, and you were all over this on LandryFootball.com, the changing of the guard at LSU in terms of their athletic department. Well, it has been something that's been coming down the pike for a while with Joe Oliva. Uh, For those that are college fans, probably are familiar with uh, the basketball situation with the basketball coach, Will Wade. Wade. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously going back to the handling of Les Miles and how they basically, to refresh people's memory, they basically floated out the idea that Les Miles would need to win out to save his job just to kind of, like the politicians do, they float out ideas and just see where the public goes and then just if they if the public doesn't like it oh no we wouldn't do that you know and that, <laughs> that's kind of the world the world the, the way it works now that's the the new pr you know motive that that a lot of pr firms uh, tell folks to well that blew up blew up because at that time um they were they, they thought and i was kind of in the middle of it they thought they were going to hired Jimbo Fisher. Um, and, and I never got the feeling that they were that close. They thought they were, but from the other side of it, um, I never felt that, well, they went into that Thanksgiving week, uh, is thinking they had Jimbo Fisher. Um, they didn't, he backed out on Friday before, uh, Friday after Thanksgiving and LSU plays A&M in Tiger stadium. And what was, Likely going to be Les Miles' last game, or so everyone thought. Mm-hmm. Folks remember Les waving the big hat and you know, and all this kind of stuff, and you know, sending them goodbye. And, and their LSU is in a panic because they don't have another plan. Now they could have gone into a full fledged search, but along with this process, there had been some major problems within the state in terms of budgetary issues, and they were here. They were going to have to buy out Les Miles with no plan to replace him because the only plan they had fell through. And it was at that time, a couple of board members um, and key boosters in the halftime third quarter of the A&M game says we basically convinced President F. King Alexander that you, you can't do this. You're going to fire and have to eat up his contract which comes from private money, but it just is a bad appearance and a bad look. And you don't even, I mean, you're going to go into a full-fledged search and everybody knows you've been turned down because it's been leaked out that you're going to get Jimbo Fisher, yada, yada, yada. And then, of course, that was the ill-fated press conference where our, you know, Joe Oliva comes in after the game and says, well, I said I wasn't going to make a decision to after the season and now the uh-huh, season's over and uh-huh. Les Miles is still our coach. And, of course, that led to, we all knew that, the, the the die had been cast and it led into next year. I can remember spoke speaking with some administrators at that time that uh, they had put in a plan in place 
thinking, okay, well, we've got less. That's how they were thinking about it. So they had put in a plan if things started off slow that they were going to fire Ed, replace – excuse me, fire it less and Mm -hmm. replace him with Ed Orgeron and kind of – because they didn't want to promote the coordinators and just put Ed in that position. And they would just go forward there. They would – probably make the move at that point if the offense struggled that they would fire Cam Cameron as well and elevate Steve Insminger as the offensive coordinator. Well, lo and behold, the season started and there we go. It's a September game. We remember the game down on the plains against Auburn and LSU scores in the last play of the game to win the game, except it's reviewed and the clock (laughs) ran out. And that was the game, loser go home, remember? And uh, Gus Malzahn was on his last breath and is still kind of breathing through a ventilator there and on the planes. Um, and of course, Les was fired during the season. Ed was promoted. And then we all know what happened then. <clears throat> there again, Joe Leva makes another run at Jimbo Fisher and they think they got a deal. And, you know, it's a, he said, he said, and supposedly the money, you know, at the end of the day, they offered Jimbo the job, <clears throat> pardon me, but, it wasn't enough money, and so he backs out again. So what do they do? They go to Tom Herman, and they're going to get the Houston coach, Tom Herman. He plays LSU, embarrassingly, for Joe Oliva. They get the Texas job. Well, what does Joe Oliva do? Instead of taking a breath, going through a search, myself and a couple of other people involved had some really good head coaches that were interested in the job, standing head coaches in the country. Um uh, He didn't want to do that. He was so embarrassed. He was the only thing he was thinking about, Scott, was naming Ed Augeron before Texas named their guy as if he was going to. As if he was the first choice. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, like, yeah, I said, we didn't want you anyway. I mean, it's like fourth grade all over again when the, the, the cute girl doesn't want to go to the sock op with you. Well. I didn't want you anyway, you know, so, and it was just, uh, you know, and it was just, embarrassing. now listen, Ed has done a nice job, but we also know he forced Ed to hire a big name coordinator and Ed, you know, didn't do his homework and hired Matt Canada and Matt has had a history of having contentious relationships with head coaches that blew up in that first full year where Ed's the head coach. And we, they lost to Troy, and, and you know, they rally and play better. Well, at the end of the year, Ed says, you know, I'm not going to make this change. The guy he wanted all along was the guy that he knew very well was Steve Insminger. So anyway, it, basically, there's been a whole bunch of issues. Um, he's somebody that was didn't really adjust well to the folks here in Louisiana. And college football and college athletics, Scott, as you well know, is, is such a big fundraising part. And and I, I'm not a big believer, particularly as it relates to the head coaches fitting in local guy. But, but if you're an administrator, you better press the flesh and you better know the people at your school and your boosters and your fan base because you are a fundraiser and you can't sit there and be a sourpuss. And that's kind of what Joe was. So the end was coming. The guy that has been known, and I've talked about it for years, that, that it's been known, Scott Woodard. Yeah, this is his dream job. He's a Baton Rouge guy. I've known him. That was probably the fastest job, you know, filling a vacancy that I've that I've ever seen because it's it just seemed like as soon as they announced that Joe Oliva was stepping down, everybody before it was even announced was like, "Well, here comes Scott Woodward from Texas A and M. He's getting the job." Yeah, well, and actually, the the process, which it may come out publicly, I think, because 
the body's still cold and he's still on campus and doing some stuff and earning out his contract. I don't think they want to flaunt this. But the reality is the phone call was made to Scott and say, we're thinking about doing this. And are you on board now? Uh, And the answer was yes. Had had he said, no, I need to wait until, I don't know, June or July, or I need to wait until next January, Joe Oliva would still have his job until Scott Woodard was willing to come. He he was willing to come right away. In fact, he wanted to come right away and deal with some of the issues that are going on. And so that was the announcement. And and you're right. It it was one of those deals where I think they were going to supposedly announce it uh, on Monday after Easter, but it just got out too quick. And so they just – uh, you, you know, Scott is I've known Scott for years. He went to high school right in Baton Rouge. His family's from Baton Rouge. Um, a, a little known fact, I, I I saw Scott the Saturday before at the LSU spring game. Yeah, let me repeat that. The athletic director at A&M is at the LSU spring game. Hmm. Now, that's not all that surprising because Scott has been at, L- at every LSU spring game that I can remember for the last 10 years. Yeah. When he was athletic director at Washington, when he was at A&M, he lived five minutes from the airport and he would at least come to Baton Rouge twice a month. His mom and dad still live here. His, uh, one of his brothers still live here. His box at A&M had more LSU people in it than A&M people. He's <laughs> just a LSU guy. And so... There he is. He's back, and it's probably the best move for LSU in a long time. He is a political animal. He was a guy that was a lobbyist. He worked for Mark Emmert, and I work with Scott and Mark and, you know, the whole bringing Nick Saban in. So uh, one thing I will say is I think everybody's on notice that you better win, and I think that Scott Woodard has proven that he knows how to fix a program. He knows how to hire a coach. If he needs to. And most importantly, he can stroke the right people in the governor's office, which is really important, the state legislature, which is really important. And then everybody associated with the program, a couple of big boosters. He can get everybody on board. So in essence, uh, he wouldn't have let a situation fallen through, because even though F. King Alexander put the kibosh on uh, hiring Jimbo Fisher um, you know, Scott Woodrow would make sure that that wouldn't happen that way, that he'd figure out a way to do it. That's okay. a well, well, you long bring, diatribe you, on how things played out. Well, you bring up Jimbo Fisher, and that's what I was going to say is that's where a lot of people started to uh, – the wheels started to turn here. When, you know, Woodward gets, Woodward gets the job, and everyone knows that Woodward's the only reason why Jimbo Fisher was at Texas A&M in the first place. And so despite the fact that he signed the extension last year, people were saying, could Jimbo Fisher eventually get to LSU? Well, Fisher comes out and says he's not going anywhere. He signed a 10-year, $75 million contract last offseason, and he plans to remain an Aggie. But how long does that last? Well, first of all, and it's the right thing to do, and and, and I believe there's sincerity there, but Scott Woodard is not going to come in and fire Ed Ogeron. You know, now there's on there would be some fans that would say, "Oh, I mean, Jimbo's a much better coach than Ed Orgeron." I, I grant you that, but Ed has done. They hired Ed. He is one of their own, just like Scott's yep. one of the Louisiana own. Mm-hmm. Ed is. Ed hasn't. Ed hadn't gone. You know, six and five the past two years. Um, you know, uh, Ed has done a nice job. Is he a championship caliber coach? No, but he he's got this job. So. Jimbo's the, the, Jimbo can't go to a job that's not going to be open. Now, if 
and I don't think this is going to happen. If LSU has a year where they're eight and four this year, then I think 2020 will be a pivotal year. I don't think Ed can survive like two eight and four seasons. Then I think Scott Woodard will go and hire someone. I I don't think it's going to be Jimbo Fisher. I think, you know, everyone will assume that. I, I would not rule that out, Scott. But it really depends. We don't know since it's not going to happen for a while. We don't know who the hot guy is going to be in two years. Mm-hmm. They, they may not want to hire Jimbo. Jimbo may not do quite it. I mean, you just don't know. I mean, we all expect that. Am I ruling out that in two, three years that he can listen? He could come over if the if it's offered to him and the money's right. He has a zero buyout at AM. So Jimbo could leave tomorrow if he wanted to and he'd owe AM nothing that's what's got aggie folks folks concerned yeah so and and i do think it's important that they hire the right guy as the athletic director at AM to make sure that jimbo's happy and jimbo works well but i, I think that is way premature to start talking about jimbo to lsu uh that could be a conversation we'll have in two to three years if certain circumstances uh, get to the point where the LSU job looks like it could come open. And speaking of A&M, it's R.C. Slocum who gets mm-hmm. the job as their interim athletic director. So, and, and he may have a decent job depending upon finding the right – it may have a decent job, a decent chance of getting the job full time. I think it's more of an – it's a plan is interim. Uh, I think they like Dan Radakovich a lot from Clemson. Um, but if they can't find that – that ideal guy, they may go with RC kind of maybe interim for a longer range, or maybe they put a deal like Tennessee did with Phil Fulmer, and he's kind of in that role maybe permanently. But, you know, he's in his 70s. He's not going to be long-term. But if they can't – I think they obviously want to hire the right guy. And, you know, the complexities of firing the, the right and, – and let me just say this too. Scott Woodard, with all of his success, and he hired Buzz Williams in addition to Jimbo. He's done a really good job. He was only like middle of the pack pay at, at AM, which is a little bit unusual as they normally pay well. So they're, they're going to likely have to, you know, pay high to get one of the elite guys. If they can't, they may go with RC until they find that guy that they really are intrigued with. Uh, before we get into our state of the program on Clemson and news on the Clemson recruiting front, Chris, the NCAA Rules Committee has approved a couple of rule changes for this upcoming season, including strengthening the target rules and limiting overtimes first on the overtime front when a game goes to five overtimes instead of then alternating possessions they're going to start with two-point conversions so in after uh, in a fifth overtime you will have to start with a two-point conversion until a win- winner is determined this is a player safety rule uh, last year you had Texas A&M LSU ironic we're speaking about those two teams mm-hmm. they went to seven overtimes um, there's only been five games over the past five seasons that have gone to five overtimes. So people might you know, bug out about this, but this is an extremely rare situation where a game goes five overtimes. That score, by the way, was Texas A&M 74, LSU 72. And it is really meant to spare players from, you know, uh, the, the fatigue and injuries. And let me say this. We were so fortunate in college football, that that game was the last game of the season. Now, I mean, they, they played bowl games, I know that, but there was a big break. Could you imagine A&M and LSU having to play the next week? Or having to play on a short week, like a Thursday. 
Well, I mean, and they don't, you know, of course, the SEC doesn't, they well, you don't play the, uh, well, the, the, the right, team, but, but your point's well taken. I'm saying any team. Yeah, well, I mean, normally, I mean, in college, of course, no one plays on that chart week because they usually will have the open date or something. Yeah. But, but so let's just say it on a regular week. That, that's, that is, I mean, you're talking both teams. Um, I know you're into that. That, that would have been a strong play against both of those teams. <laughs> the <laughs> the over, but the that, over in that one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just, it, it's, it, it wasn't good. And listen, it, it I, I think that is there, but for the grace of God would have been really ugly because I think it would have led to a loss the next week for both more mm-hmm. than likely, mm-hmm. or, or certainly a very uh, disadvantageous situation. So I get it. And it's put in place. As you mentioned, it, it'll be from the three yard line on that fifth. And at that point, just got to get it over with. I mean, you know, it's just at some point you got to get it over. With. I mean, to the point where you go back to say, hey, we're calling a tie at some point. But, yeah, I think it's uh, it makes a lot of sense to put that in play, to have an avenue in case you get one of those situations, because the next time, you know, it could happen, you know, in October. Uh, it could kind of ruin the season for two or three weeks if you have one of those games like LSU A&M. Let's talk about the progressive penalty that is now the targeting rule. So previously, the targeting rule was if a player gets one in the first half of a game, he misses the remainder of the game. If he gets one in the second half, he misses the first half of the next game, right? Mm -hmm. Now the new rule is going to be progressive. That if you commit three targeting fouls in the same season, you could face a one-game suspension. What do you think about that? Well, listen, um, People don't like the targeting rule, and I get it. And it, it, it has an intrusion into the game. It has a tremendous effect. And I get it because there's a little bit of – well, no, let me back up. It's a lot of inconsistency on how it's called. In theory, Scott, we have to, to get these lowering your head shots out of the game. In mm-hmm. football, just – Kids do not tackle properly. They lower their head. They're endangering themselves, their opponents. And, you know, the only way to do anything like that is to be punitive with it. I mean, I don't mean to be oversimplistic, but we all know that if you didn't have stop signs and red lights, we'd, we'd just, it would be a disaster because everybody, well, I'm going to get to, you know, you just, you just have, you have to be punitive. You know, you start writing tickets and, you know, you slow down the speed zone. You have to do it. Now, the problem is there needs to be more consistency on how they call it. So it'll be reviewed, um, and, and that, I think that's really important because – It has to be confirmed we, by replay. Absolutely, and that's the key. So I'm, I understand the rule. What I don't like is how it's called in the game at times, and that causes a lot of problems. And it's a big issue. It happened – um, with that De- before mentioned LSU, Devin white, um, it happens and he misses the first half of the Alabama game and it's okay. If he, if it was a good call, it happened to be a very questionable call. Mm. So look, I mean, you, you gotta, you gotta clearly define what's targeting and what's not and, and have consistency in how you teach it. But I'll get off of my soapbox here because the problem that we have and officiating in general, and I've done a lot of different discussions on this, it's a bigger problem even in college because 
you don't have college football officiating. You've got conference officiating and how they're taught and, and how to call things is all over the place. And consistency is the king. And so I, I, I applaud the what they're trying to do and the reason they're trying to do it. They need to execute the calls a lot better and more consistently for it to really have. I mean, and the answer is to do that. The answer is not to say, what the hell with it? We're not going to do it. Well, that, that, that's, that's chaotic. That's, that's dumb. You've got to get it corrected. And uh, so, listen, I think it's a step. At some point, Scott, you got to try things. And if it doesn't work, you tweak it. And I'm always critical of college football and the NFL at times to be reactive instead of proactive. But sometimes you have to go and be proactive and then adjust to it and say, you know what, this didn't work as well as we did. And I think the NFL is a lot better with that. They do it in preseason games. They test things out for a year. Uh-huh. I think that's I think that's fine. And so I'm OK with it. I'm just more concerned about how it's called and how it's executed on the field. We're going to get into our state of the program coming up in just a minute, and it is the number one team in the nation, the Clemson Tigers. But speaking of Clemson, Chris, the rich get rich. The rich get richer. There's no other way to put it. And and you know that when you are a top tier program, you have a front edge in terms of getting one of the top recruits in the country. Well, defensive tackle Brian Breesy just committed to Clemson. He's the number four ranked prospect in the country, a defensive tackle, the number one ranked defensive tackle in the class. And that gives Clemson three D-line recruits ranked in the top six in the past three seasons. Yeah, and I'm not so sure, and I'm not done with, uh, that's more for the summer. I'm not done with all my film, but um, he's the best player in this 2020 recruiting class that I've seen. Wow, And I've seen, and, and, you know, we're having – the NFL draft Thursday and every other player name is going to be, is going to be a defensive lineman from (laughs) Clemson. Is there a better recruiting tool than that? I mean, it's like come to Clemson, you know, now we compete for championships. We won a couple and Oh, by the way, you're going to walk across the stage and get a hat. Uh, This young man has the goods Um, been compared by, I know a couple of coaches in college that uh, I'm not quite sure that I see exactly the same style, but a little bit of a Dominic Kinsu look to him. And he's 6'5", 290, can get bigger and stronger. He's going to be an impact push player uh, in the defensive uh, um, in, in the defensive tackle position. So what what a great get for him. The rich do get richer, Scott. And, and you know, that is a byproduct of having success, having success at developing that position. You have a lot of fun. Uh, they've got their own little thing going there in, uh, in Clemson. Well, let's continue with the Clemson Tigers in our state of the program feature. What's going on at your favorite school? This is State of the Program on Rush the Field. And not much more you can say about this program, Chris. Over the past couple of years, you can make the argument, them and Alabama, the gold standard for college football success the past decade. Absolutely. Uh, You look at Clemson and say... You know, over the past two years, you could maybe you could have a discussion and argue and substantially, um, you know, argue that they are number one. They've won titles in two of the last three years. Very impressive. If you go back into the history, they've won three and two has been the most recent years. And look, I, I have to give a lot of credit to Dabo Sweeney. Uh, I have talked many times with you and others. You know that I 
involved in a lot of coaching search work. And I did that even when, when I didn't do it as in a consulting role and, and felt like I had a really good feel for who'd be good head coaches. I got to tell you, when Dabo Sweeney was promoted, I thought this is not going to work. Uh, it boy, what, was what I made wrong. You, what, this, yeah. What made you think that? Well, he was never a coordinator. Uh, I didn't know him as well as, and that's why, because if I knew him a little bit better, I, I might've had a better feel for him. He was on Tommy Bowden's staff, mm-hmm. which had consistently underachieved. So when you fire a guy, you normally, what you normally do is, you know, and, and normally you wait to the end of the season, but if you fire a coach during the season, you promote from within. How often does the guy you promote from within, you know, get the job? You normally, you do that to finish the season and you clean house. And it's not like they just, they got better when Dabble was there, but, but it wasn't like he did something that changed the culture right away that would say, yeah, let's go do that. And, you know, they looked at some other people and it, it, they just decided to go with Dabble and give him a chance. And he sold them on, He's a really good salesman, great people person, and he convinced them that if you give me the budget, which they may have a lot of money and make a lot of money, that I can, we can hire really well. And, and he's a designator. He is not a great X's and O guy, so I, I worried a little bit from that standpoint. I knew he was a good recruiter, but I did not realize that he could be do such a good job of putting together a coaching staff as well as he had. Now, the culture and all that has allowed guys to stay there. So you hadn't have to replace a lot of them. But I think those things surprised me. And it's because I didn't know him as well. And I knew him, you know, watched him. But I didn't know him personally well enough to know that, yeah, th- this guy's got it. So I'm beyond surprised that he's been this good. If you look at it, it was – he was part of the whole term Clemsoning, you know, where they underachieved. That that really started under Tommy Bowden. And Dabble was part of it. And Dabble, the first couple of years, continued that. And I know they've they still lost a game here, there, but and I know people will say, yeah, they're in the ACC. It's not a strong league. I get it. But they've proven themselves in the big time moment. So Color me surprised. It's a great historical program. Started in the late 1800s. They were one of the founding members of the ACC. They've got 18 ACC titles. Um, you know, they, they play their game in Memorial Stadium, what they call Death Valley. You know, in their early history, 1900, they had a guy coaching them by the name of John Heisman. They named a little award later on after this guy. <laughs> uh, and, and, and he left, and, and Jess Neely came in. Um, you know, and, and kind of took over for John Heisman and really did a nice job um, in, in kind of putting the program together. He was an assistant coach under Dan McGee and um, McGeegan in, in, at Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt was a power back then, folks. And he comes in and he was actually a, a Jess was an assistant at Rhodes College, which is in outside of outskirts of Memphis. And he was an assistant at Alabama. And, you know, he, uh, you know, after, you know, uh, uh, Josh Cody in the late 20s, early 30s, Jess comes in and he really did a good job. And it kind of a turning point in the program where they started to play well. They challenged Duke. Yes, Duke and Vanderbilt were powers in college football. In the old Southern Conference days, they absolutely were pre-SEC. They go to their first bowl game with them. He also, Jess Neely, along with the athletic director, Rupert Fike. Started something called IPTAY, I-P-T-A-Y, 
which is a scholarship fund which supports the athletic department, and it stands for I pay 10 a year, as in 1,000. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Now, now it stands for I pay 30 a year, uh, <laughs> as, as, as inflation has created. Then after 39, uh, they move on, and they hired the legendary, which became the legendary Frank Howard. Um, Howard was an assistant under Neely. Um, he was promoted. Uh, Jess Neely had left to become the head coach at Rice. You see a theme here. Uh, you know, a lot of these programs that are great academic programs before college football became the, well, oh, just good athletic athletes here. It was really academic oriented. And those good academic programs happen to be the best football programs. So Jess goes to, to Rice, Frank Howard, um, uh, imagine that today. I got coach leaving Clemson to go to Rice. That that's I, I that blows my mind. That's why I say that again. And but Frank Howard is promoted. Uh, great personality guy. He um, he he kind of oversaw the athletic department when he was a head coach. He was an assistant for the baseball team, Scott, and he incorporated the single wing, the T formation, the I formation. He had two undefeated seasons and forty eight and fifty and. Um, was really, really good. He was a great offensive line coach, went to good bowl games and, you know, and, and was there from 1940 to 1969. And, you know, when he decided, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, Howard's Rock and how that came to be in a little bit. Then Hootie Ingram came in. He had the Alabama ties and they really struggled from 70 to 72. He had a 12 and 21 record. Then they bring in Red Parker from 73 to 76. And he struggled as well. 17, 25 record. He had a seven and four season in 74 and he was the coach of the year. But then he went two and nine and three, six and two. And then they ran him out of Clemson. Then they brought in in 77, Charlie Pell. Charlie Pell had coached, uh, um, been a successful uh, assistant under Bear Bryant. Comes in and does a really good job. He wins the ACC Coach of the Year twice. He led the Clemson to the 78 ACC Championship. He had an 18-4-1 record. And you remember Steve Fuller, um, Lester Brown, and Marvin Sims, great running backs, really good teams. They, 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 um, they played Clemson total, uh, Georgia toe-to-toe in, the, the, uh, the, in some really great games in the late 70s. Um, and then, of course, after a couple of years, uh, Charlie Pell decides to leave Clemson under the cloud of NCAA investigations to go to Florida. So they promote his offensive line coach, Danny Ford, to head coach. So this is the first of the really good promotions, right? So Danny Ford comes in. And what was Danny Ford's first game? Well, of course, it was the Gator Bowl against Ohio State. Remember that? Woody Hayes' last game because Woody Hayes punched Charlie Ballman on the <laughs> sidelines. That infamous. So that was Danny Ford's first game. Well, Danny comes in. He does a really good job. And, I mean, he has some really good seasons. I remember the 81 season. It was one of the craziest college seasons ever. Uh, you didn't know who was going to win the national championship. But Clemson just kind of got better and better. They beat defending champion Georgia 13-3. Uh, I mean, they defensively, they just rallied and tackled Herschel Walker, kept him out of the end zone. That was impressive. I mean, I'm really impressive at that time. They were led by Homer Jordan, who was a dual-threat quarterback. They have really good running backs and Cliff Austin and Chuck McSwain. And then, um, you know, uh, Perry Tuttle, who ended up being a first-round draft pick with the Buffalo Bills, made big plays in the passing game. 
but defensively is where they made their hay. Terry Kennard and Jeff Davis and defensive end Jeff Bryan, and they had a freshman defensive tackle that was a phenom by the name of William Perry. Before he grew into the refrigerator, he and start eating and closing down all the McDonald's on campuses every night. That's an interesting story for another day. Um, Fridge was unbelievable as a freshman. Uh, really great player. Uh, they finished the regular season that year 11-0. They were invited to the Orange Bowl, played in Nebraska. It was the first trip to the Orange Bowl in over 30 years for Clemson. They wore all orange uniforms for the second time. And they had Mike Rozier did Nebraska and um, they played them very well, beat them and won the national championship. And that's kind of the last we heard of them on the, the national championship run stage, because what happened is more probations came about. Danny Ford had some issues. They kept him. Uh, he continued to coach for a while, 87 and 90, had four consecutive 10-win seasons, won three straight ACC titles. So they were still very good, not national championship good, but they were still good. But then after their first probation had ended, they had another NCAA violations under Danny Ford that forced the resignation under Danny. And then they bring in Ken Hatfield from Arkansas to kind of clean up the place. Ken was uh, a Bible thumper and kind of run, got run out of Arkansas by Frank Broyles. He comes in and he had a 32, 13 and one record. They went to bowl games, but you know, after having the success of who they had before, they just weren't real happy with them. In fact, the, the, the mantra at that time, Scott was Howard as in Frank Howard built it. Danny Ford filled it. And Hatfield killed it. <laughs> it was it was it was kind of bad. Well, then then they bring in Tommy West from ninety three to ninety eight, and it just wasn't really all that successful. Then Clemson in ninety nine hired Tommy Bowden from Tulane. Tulane had gone unbeaten. Bobby Bowden's son, you know, Golden Boy, he comes in. If you remember in the early stages, of course, they're in the ACC as Florida State is now joining Clemson. So we have the first Bowden Bowl with Tommy and and his dad. And they were bowl eligible every year. And they did a nice job. Never won an ACC title. Um, They had a 2014 that had a good year, but they had a brawl against South Carolina. So they canceled the bowl game. And they, they were known to underachieve. And this is where Clemsoning started. And boy, that just rankles the Clemson folks. But that's kind of what people started to to um, to to do, to look at them. Hey, boy, they're talented, but they they uh, they really struggle in big moments. So they he resigns in October of 2008. And then we get into where, again, the receiver coach, Dabo Sweeney, not the coordinator, the receiver coach. And this happens sometimes is an interim role, Scott. We talk about it all the time. You promote a position coach so that the coordinators you don't have to, they can stay doing what they're doing because you really spread your staff thin if now you got to hire two positions if you put a coordinator there then you got to hire another coordinator and if you, that's workable you do it but in a lot of cases you don't so he's the interim head coach they go to four and two they finish the regular season seven and six you know it doesn't i mean nice job in an interim role but you know so did ed orgeron at usc so mm-hmm. do a lot of them it usually doesn't lead to getting a head coaching job. And as I said to start this, I just was uninspired by where the direction of the program was going to go. Got to give a lot of credit to the Clemson administration, to Dabo. They started to get a little bit better, and they were patient with them. And, yes, the Clemsoning continued. But 
to a lesser degree and a lesser degree, and they really went out and spent money. They put um, their money where their mouth is, and they hired Chad Morris. He became the highest-paid assistant coach in the country, $1.3 million. You know, back a few years ago, 2011, I know the money's escalating quickly. That was an eye-opening uh-huh. deal, Scott. And then, of course, they also added Tony Elliott and you know a couple of other guys on the staff. That's above all the things that Dabo's done, he's hired well, and he and his staff have recruited well. And we get to where, okay, so Chad moves on, and he becomes a head coach at SMU, and they do a really good job of replacing those guys. He hired a great defensive coordinator in Brent Venables away from Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. I think Oklahoma's still sorry they let him out the door. Yep. Uh, and, you know, it, the rest, as they say, is history. The recruiting, as we just mentioned, that's just a more recent example of what they continue to do. Um, and they just, they're loaded with talent. They get after you. It's just an outstanding team. No question about it. So, uh, the great traditions of, of Howard rock and running down the hills, one of the greatest and, and, uh, listen, Clemson is right now is as good as it gets. They are the gold standard right there with Alabama in terms of college football success in this country and should be a favorite to win the national championship once again here in 2019 with Trevor Lawrence at the helm. Now, Chris, I know I know you're very busy because the draft is coming up uh, here in just the two days, right? Uh, you got a lot of stuff on LandryFootball.com, not just in the draft, though, but what can we find over the course of the next couple of days as we progress through the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and so on rounds of the NFL draft through the weekend. We'll break down every draft pick for every team. And so we'll let you know who, obviously you're going to know who goes where, but we'll break down the fits and how that plays out. But we also, for our college fans, I'm already planning and getting things in place and started to do some framework of we're going to be breaking down position units in college football, all the rosters. So uh, we're going to be you're going to get some insights that you really don't find anywhere else, breaking down the X's and O's and the personnel uh, of each of the rosters around college football. We're going to get deep into it on the college and NFL level. That's what we do. I mean, yeah, I mean, May, June and July and and before we head into the season, we're going to get you prepared for the football season not going to just know the names, but going to be know who to look out for. I can remember last year at this time talking incessantly on LandryFootball.com about this tight end out of Iowa, T.J. Hawkinson, that I loved. Oh, he's only maybe the best offensive player in this draft. So we're going to see him go high in the first round. So that's what you get, uh, whether you like recruiting, whether you like just college football, just the NFL, the draft. We cover it 12 months a year at LandryFootball.com. So check us out. There it is. And follow Chris on Twitter at LandryFootball. Follow me on Twitter at ScottsOnAir. This is Rush the Field, which can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com. Radio Influence strives to bring you excellence in podcasting. We work with personalities like TV chef Brian Duffy, radio personalities like Ian Beckles and DJ Eakin, news and political pundits like Law and Crime Network's Vincent Hill, and independent journalists Frank and Tracy Beans, experts from the sports world like veteran football scout and coach Chris Landry, pro wrestling personality David Penzer, MMA experts Jason Floyd and Daniel Galvan, and strength and conditioning coach Jeff Crochelle. If you're looking for food, sports, music, entertainment, politics, no matter the topic, Radio Influence has something for everyone. All of Radio Influence's programming can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, and RadioInfluence.com.